South Africa is a major producer and exporter of avocados globally, grown mainly in the humid subtropical areas of Limpopo, Mpumalanga and parts of KwaZulu-Natal. It's truly the green gold for new farmers. And this week we share tips to get started. Dr. Aluwani Nemokula joins us to unpack the much anticipated court ruling in favor of farmers when it comes to the transferability and trading of water rights. Our book of the week is The Common Path to Uncommon Success: A Roadmap to Financial Freedom and Fulfillment by John Leedmar. And our farmer tip of the week comes from Free State Farmer Nkosana Mtambo. This is Farmers Inside Track. Supported by Food from Zanzi, inspiration for your business and life from South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 127 of Farmers Inside Track. I'm your host, Donumdu. Now, I must be honest; I've been feeling a bit under the weather, but like many South Africans, I'm pushing through because it's important that we stay resilient. Now let's get straight into that promise guide to growing avocados in South Africa. Nicole Ludolf chats to three experts this week: Lauren Strever from Amarantia Sweet Dragon Fruit Estate and Nursery, Stephen Matso from the South African Avocado Growers Association, he is their transformation coordinator, and Michael Miller from Miller Family Boudre Trust in Limpopo. We have a full house today, and it's so awesome to get all of our experts sharing their knowledge on all things growing avos. Over to you, Nicole. Thank you so much, Dawn. Now, Mikhail, can you please tell us how long it takes for avocado trees to bear fruit? Well, actually, the avocado tree is quite fast to produce to come into production. Obviously, production can be one fruit, isn't it? <laughs> As a gardener, one could plant the seed, and then the seeds, or every seed from every avocado, will be of different genetic composition. Which ends up, as a gardener, I'll be disappointed because the one I plant and eat from will not be the same as the one I actually acquired on the shelf. So for that reason, it's, if I go into commercial production, it'll be important to acquire the actual vegetative material or the, the trees from a commercial farmer's nursery that can ascertain that these trees that I acquire is of the cultivar that I'm acquiring that I wanted to plant. Obviously, there are quite a variety of cultivars that's available. Cultivar being being the, the type of fruit, isn't it? So once I acquire the fruit tree, it's already more or less one year old. Once planting, I can expect by the next year of the same period. Within 12 months, in other words, the next flowering season, this little tree might push its first little flowers, and of those, there might be the first setting of fruit. In other words, the year after that, we'll have the first one or two or three, maybe five fruits on that tree. Obviously, depending on the different cultivars, some are much more reproductive as than other ones. But that gives us an idea. More or less two years before the first minute crop will be on the tree. Lauren, what is the average cost of an avo tree? It can depend on a variety of aspects. To give you an idea, from our nursery, our avo trees cost 135 rand per tree, and that would be to a commercial grower. We use seedling rootstock. So, as Michal explained, if you took a seed from your garden and sprouted it, yes, you might grow a tree, and yes, it might produce the odd fruit, but it wouldn't necessarily be true to type of the cultivar that you acquired that seed from. So, if you go into the supermarkets and you buy hass and you take the hass seed and you sprout it and it grows, you're not going to pick a hass. You're going to Pick an unknown genetic. So what we do is have to graft the cultivar onto the rootstock to determine or to create the required and the desired cultivar. So that is the method that we use in our nursery. And other nurseries also produce what they call a clonal rootstock, which is a more complicated process, and they do charge a different price. There's a different price set for a clonal rootstock 
which is then also grafted to the cultivar. I can't actually give you a price right now, but I mean, if you contact different nurseries, you could get a good idea of prices. But as Michal mentioned, it's always important to source your trees from a commercial nursery that has the experience and the know-how. There's a lot of protocols that go into the sanitary environments and sourcing the correct cultivars, the correct plant material that you actually end up with a superior tree, the right cultivar with a good healthy root system. It's an easy thing to produce, especially on mass, which is why it's important to source your trees from a commercial nursery. Stephen, what are the climate requirements for growing avocados? Can you also take us through the soil requirements for growing avocados? Commonly, people call it the green belt, going down through the Tanin, Mugeti Tanin area, and going down through again in the Pumalanga area of Wet River Nelspreet, going down again into the KZN, and currently going down the Eastern Cape and a little bit of the Cape. That is where you find the green belt, which a lot of farmers are referring to. So there's a lot of rainfall on this region. The soil is very good. And that's why it's considered the subtropical area. That is where a lot of avocado is grown and it becomes a commercial. But then there are a number of things which must be considered when you're planting avocado in this region. The first one is that you must consider that the area, even if it has frost, the frost must not be what we call a black frost. Because a black frost delay the production of the tree. In winter, it becomes extremely cold. And how do you determine that it becomes extremely cold? It's when you check your normal water freeze so that the water cannot flow. You know that you have black frost in the area. So the place with that black frost doesn't or you cannot grow avocado from the area. Secondly, you must check the soil type. If your soil is sandy, the plant cannot survive. I know that there's a lot of technology which is being introduced, but a lot of farmers are not producing enough quality, enough quantity through this sandy soil uh, production because it delays the production and the soil becomes more hot in winter. And one of the things which avocado doesn't want is that the soil must not become hot in the summer time. And again, one thing which we must consider is the rainfall pattern. If you know that your rainfall is delaying, your uh, soil doesn't keep enough water quantity, and you find that you don't have enough water resources around you. Avocado is something not to consider as planting because those are a number of things which are needed. And those we find a lot of time in the subtropical regions of your Limpopo going to Mpumalanga, KZN, Eastern Cape, and some part of the Eastern Cape and down in the Western Cape and some part of the Western Cape. Farming with avocados has a reputation for being rather heavy on water consumption and pesticide usage. Lauren, do you still think it's something aspiring farmers should aim for? I think what you're talking about is something that the entire globe needs to be conscious about in all fields of agriculture. Farmers in general need to have a shift in their outlook and their approach to fertilizing and to pest control. And ultimately, at the end of the day, for us to survive and for it to continue to be sustainable, we have to consider sustainable approaches, which means biological control of pests, of diseases. And that's where the industry bodies like Saga, for example, with the avocados, play such an important role in helping to do that research, helping to bring new solutions. But I think that's a global issue that needs to be considered very strongly. Thanks, Nicole, and great having you, Lauren Strever, Stephen Matzo, and Michael Miller. Next up, we're now joined by Dr. Aluwani Nemukula from Lumen Holdings. 
He joins us to unpack the much-anticipated court ruling in favor of farmers when it comes to the transferability and trading of water rights. Thank you so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Maybe as a start, just a bit of background of yourself for those who might not know you here on this podcasting platform. I actually, I'm a farmer and I'm just a director of a fully-fledging I mean, farming startup company. It's called Alunem Holdings. It's based in Mpopo. So we do actually, I mean, primary agriculture as well as consulting. On the other hand, I'm also a researcher and also a published scholar. Thank you so much for joining me. And it's always amazing to speak to new experts and, and people working actively in the field. It's a bonus that you're both in research and in agriculture. So thank you so much for being here. Now, Umzanzi's agricultural industry is waiting with bated breath for South Africa's highest court ruling in favor of farmers when it comes to the transferability and trading of water rights. Now, let's start with some background info first. What do our current laws stipulate and how will it change based on the court ruling? The management of water is is a very complex topic and it involves a lot of variables and a lot of stakeholders. So what I'll discuss here today is something that will actually relate it more specifically and applicable to farming and farmers at large. So as you recall, we have got the Water Act that actually was promulgated in 1998, which is Act number 36, which actually the fundamental purpose of this was to regulate water use in South Africa and therefore it replaces any other previous laws related to water rights. This water actually introduced a fundamental change, which actually means that users will eventually somehow have at least a title deed that is associated with water rights. In other words, the water usage in the particular property, they own a property. So that's exactly the background of this Water Act. The Department of Water and Sanitation have got entitlement in issuing, I mean, these water rights to water users for the papers, more especially, I mean, when it comes to agriculture, it means in the agricultural property or a farm. And it has got many implications in the sense that the department, again, actually now decided to change gear. This was after the drought in the Western Cape that hit the country, or that region, I mean, severely. And we actually ended up having secular that actually informed the public and the South African citizens because water is a resource in the country. Therefore, the department will have to regulate it more strongly and more strictly. So that's exactly where the contention is with this particular water rise, as well as uh, its relation to the Water Act of 1998. The farmer's body, AgriSA, has been instrumental in the ongoing case after the Supreme Court of Appeal ruled in November 2021 that water rights holders are entitled to transfer their rights in accordance with the provisions of the National Water Act that you just referred to. AgriSA has funded a legal challenge stating that the irrigation agricultural sector will be heavily affected by the ruling. Could you maybe unpack this further? And I know that you also mentioned that there are others also playing a part in sort of trying to avoid this. What is the context there? Can you give us some information on that? Once the department has issued that circular, uh, which actually now reverses the water rights flexibility of those who hold, I mean, the water rights that they can transfer them and sell them to any other person who can occupy the property. It actually now means that it affects, of course, the property as well as the value of that property, the water use license that was issued. And effectively, now what the government wants They've determined that because we are now a water-scarce country, they need to be the custodian of this water issuing as well as control of the licenses. In other words, they've now declared that water is a natural resource to anyone who actually needs to actually transfer, they actually have the right to do that. So essentially what it means after this circular was actually issued, that if similarly, if you've got a gold in your backyard, that gold does not belong to you, actually it belongs to the government. That's exactly where the contention is, where AgriAce has launched and therefore, a legal appeal up to uh, the Supreme Court, wherein now the Constitutional Court is now going to hear what will be the final judgment. 
So the demand is arguing that the sale of water rights and water use entitlements will frustrate sort of equitable access and keep those historically I mean, disadvantaged persons out of the agricultural sector if they cannot afford it. And therefore, they're declaring that so far water cannot be sold. Now, as you know, AgriSA has been challenging this and there's been some milestones or some achievement in that regard. As we are waiting for the judgment, that judgment that has been declared on the 25th of August this year in 2022, it will have far-reaching consequences, especially, of course, for the agriculture sector and more especially those large commercial farmers. So that's exactly where the contention is at the moment, John. You basically alluded to my next question in terms of, you know, how will this outcome really affect farmers? And you speak about commercial farmers and commercial producers, but what happens to smaller scale farmers or new farmers wanting to enter the sector? How does this change the game for them? If you're a new farmer and you're actually now acquiring, let's say, a land that has got I mean, at least sufficient water resources, you simply need to just, again, focus on acquiring the land part of it without actually now getting into the intricacies of the water rights, who it belongs to and who actually can actually sell it. At the moment, the department is trying to now redress these issues, looking at especially emerging farmers to say they must also have equitable access to this scarce resource. That will actually drive prices, of course, for properties, especially that it involves the land together with the water. So it means if you're a farmer, it could be easier potentially to detach the price of the farm that you want to purchase, as well as the water resources around that farm. So essentially, it is good as it is as a status quo. But for the commercial farmers, it actually I mean, spells a little bit of a disaster or a havoc because it means, therefore, the farm's value is not the same as it was previously acquired because you cannot actually I mean, transfer the water rights together with the farm. And therefore, if you're selling that farm and you don't have the water rights, that means whoever is coming and has been allocated a specific usage of water may not actually farm actually normally or sustainably. And that has got, of course, financial implications. It is a very delicate topic so far. And as we await the judgment, we will see exactly how this unfolds. It sounds extremely complicated. And I think we are really waiting for this judgment to clarify everything and especially for new players in the game, what do you think is the best way forward to protect the scarce resource and for equality for all farmers in the country, Dr. Nemokula? Based on the judgment that will be issued from the court, we should actually now just realize that at the moment, so far there's a ban on the continuation of this practice of transferring of water rights. In other words, the water rights holder cannot actually I mean, utilize or transfer that right at the moment or take such rights to the third party. So going forward, I would say, I would suggest that we just need a balance to actually now really make sure that everything else is actually based on circumstances and it is not based on financial gains and financial losses, but it must also be a balance of actually equitable access to the resource and also really equitable access in general to the land that can be farmed and therefore be productive, especially for new emerging farmers. And that's exactly where I would say the way forward should actually consider these salient points. But it will be exciting, of course, if the judgment is a balanced outcome, which in fact means that those irrigation boards in the previous regions of the country who had previously been empowered to make decisions on water rights, if they still may be granted authority on that, but with actually mandate to now redress, of course, historical disadvantages that may also I mean, affect affordability, of course, and accessibility and equitable access, of course, of this precious resource that is water. So there is, of course, a lot at stake here. Two sides of, of the coin, that is the ones who are I mean, pro-change in water rights I mean, usage, as well as those who want to protect the status quo. 
That is, the quarterized mask continue to be actually transferred lawfully and without any prohibition from government or any other agencies. It has to be a balance so far, Don. And we're just waiting, as you mentioned earlier, with bated breath, what is going to be the outcome because it has got far-reaching consequences for commercial farmers at large, but also on the other spectrum for a new emerging farmers who need, of course, equitable access to the land together with the its resources in the form of water. Thanks so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track, Dr. Alawani Nemukula from Alunum Holdings. Now, before we let you go, our book of the week is The Common Path to Uncommon Success, A Roadmap to Financial Freedom and Fulfillment by John Lee Dumas. Listen, those things are critical because if you don't have focus, you are not doing the one critical thing that over 3,000 entrepreneurs that I've interviewed for this book have all done. They have followed one course until success. You know, what would happen if like you went and you planted a bunch of seeds and then the next day you just went and you picked them all up and you planted them some other seeds? Like that's what people do. That's what people are doing over and over again. They're never giving their seeds an opportunity to bloom. You know, you've got to take time. You've got to water them. You've got to nurture them. You've got to focus on them. And then guess what? They will produce for you, but not if you're just like, going and planting and ripping them up and trying new then be like, why isn't this working? It's been 24 hours. It's been 48 hours. Like what's going on? But that's what people do. I like to say they go one mile wide with all these different ideas and only one inch deep with their actual impact. And they wonder why they're not making any impact. It's the people that go one inch wide and they go one mile deep. Those are the people that really commits to focusing, to following one course until success, that become the best. Because guess what people want? People want the best solution to a real problem that they're having. And when you can provide the best solution to a real problem, people will beat a path to your doorstep because people want the best solution. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring, and that's an ideal worth preserving. Right through all departments and companies within the VKB Group, we know that farming is not just a job. It's a way of life. Let VKB help you in all aspects of the food value chain by efficiently reducing costs and optimizing value. Follow VKB on Facebook or vkb.co.za to find out how VKB can help you. VKB, for the love of the land. Remember, if you like to review a book or perhaps you have a book suggestion, feel free to email us at info at foodformzanzi.co.za. Now, before we let you go, our Farmer Tip of the Week comes from Free State Farmer Nkosani Mtambo, a.k.a. Farm Boy. He talks a bit about what it takes to produce soya beans. Prevention is better than cure. Unfortunately, I've never experienced any pests or diseases that affect my crops because I play safe. I will always tell our farmers that you'd rather spend a lot of money in fixing your soil than having to spend a lot of money in planting large population. You know, there's a say that says your house foundation should be stronger so that when you build the walls, they don't collapse. So, Mina, I start from the soil. I make sure that my pH is in good standard. And then I make sure that maybe I put on some lime just to make my soil comfortable. I use pesticide and herbicide. I go for the most expensive brand, tried and tested. Because in farming, most of our people love these shortcuts. You end up experiencing maybe getting these 
types of worms or killing these types of locusts on your crops and everything. But in the process of me being soya, I've honestly never got any problems. I've been following the guidelines and I've been playing safe, going for the best treatment when it comes to herbicides and pesticides. So it's been my second year planting soyas. I've been a maize person. My main four advices. So I haven't experienced any problem. And our farmer top of the week from Free State Farmer, Nkosane Tambo brings us to the end of another episode of Farmers Inside Track. Remember, if you loved it, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members, and most importantly, your fellow farmers. And be sure to check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. From me, Don Numdu, Nicole Ludolf, our producer Megan van der Vent, and the rest of the Food Form Zanzi team, have a great week. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food Form Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.